Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 20th of February 2022, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, King David, the good, the bad and the ugly, the father of a family and kingdom out of control. Okay, well, we are a couple of sessions at Christchurch into a parenting course that we are currently running. Here it is. And uh, there's about 17 of us there each week on Monday nights, and it's going well, as those who have come, uh, including me, reflect on the huge responsibility of being a parent and try and pick up a few practical tips on how to do this better. There are many responsibilities that come our way in life, aren't there? But there's few greater than being a parent. And the reason why it is such a responsibility is because of the simply huge impact that parents have upon their children. Now, it might be most comfortable for us to say that the biggest impact upon our children is their peers at school and the general culture, and of course those things are very significant. But the biggest influence upon children is usually their parents. Sometimes through their example, and sometimes through the decisions that we take. And both of those, our example and the decisions that we take, will impact very heavily, for good or bad, on the lives of our children, if we have them. And if there's one parent in the Bible who particularly demonstrates this, it is King David. There are many problematic fathers in the Bible. There's a few problematic mothers as well. But as we think about David under this theme of the good, the bad, and the ugly, there's really no better example of the ugly than the impact of King David upon his children, or indeed upon his kingdom, because the two were meant to go together. One of the most important passages about King David is 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David that he would always have a son on the throne of Israel. And that was meant to be just as good news for Israel as for David, because this was meant to be a special dynasty ruling over God's people. Now, in this platinum jubilee year, I won't dwell too much on contemporary monarchs and how they brought up their children, except to say that there is a vital connection between a ruler's care for their kingdom and the care that they give to the family that will one day take their place. And given the promise that God made to David about his family always ruling over Israel, you would have thought that it was pretty crucial for David to be as good a father as possible. But actually, we see the very opposite. There's actually quite a big history of strong leaders being disastrous fathers but David appears to take the biscuit. Because again and again, we see David with a family and as a result a kingdom out of control. And it all starts really with that infamous episode that we looked at last week with the help of Tim. David may have been a bit of a mixture of the good, the bad and the ugly before that episode, but what he did with Bathsheba and then with her husband Uriah was very definitely ugly, wasn't it? Uriah wasn't a native Israelite, he was a Hittite. 
but he was faithful to Israel's God. And he was therefore just the sort of person that Israel's king should have been encouraging in his walk of faith. The very reason why Israel were called to be God's people was to be a kingdom of priests, to draw the other nations into God's people. So Uriah the Hittite was just the sort of person who they should have been investing in. But instead, we see David treating Uriah appallingly, don't we? He has sex with his wife because he's got the power to do that. And then when she gets pregnant, he tries to cover that up. And when the cover-up doesn't work because of Uriah's piety, David callously has him murdered, simply because he can. And as Tim says, said last week, we don't really hear anything at all of God in 2 Samuel chapter 11 until the final verse. It just tells us this terrible story and then the final verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11 says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And in the very next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, David learns from the prophet Nathan the consequences of his actions. First, David is told that the sword will never depart from your house. Second, he is told that as he took Bathsheba in secret, David is told that someone close to him will have sex with his wives in broad daylight. And third, because David has made the enemies of the Lord, in other words, Gentiles like the Hittite, show utter contempt, because he's driven them further away from God rather than further towards God, David's told the son born to him will die. And basically, that's what we see over the next nine chapters of 2 Samuel, as we witness the disintegration of David's family and much of his kingdom. So nine chapters is quite a lot of material, so here's a whistle-stop tour of what we find in those chapters. So chapter 13, this was the one that we had read. Amnon, David's oldest son, falls in love with one of David's daughters, his half-sister, Tamar. They've got the same father but different mothers. With the help of a rather dodgy figure called Yonadab, and by manipulating his father David, Amnon engineers a situation where he's able to rape Tamar. David's furious, but he doesn't do anything about it, and after a couple of years, that's where that picture comes in on the right-hand side. Tamar's brother Absalom murders Amnon. So that's in chapter 13. On to the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 14. Absalom, having murdered his brother, goes into exile for three years, while David, who's got over the loss of Amnon, pines for Absalom. And then David's once again manipulated, this time by his commander Joab, into using a wise woman. Uh, Joab uses a wise woman to make David allow Absalom to return and be restored. And then we get to Samuel chapter 15. Absalom, by presenting himself as someone who will bring greater justice to Israel than David, leads a rebellion. It forces David to flee from Jerusalem. There's Absalom, and David fleeing is there. And many of his followers go over to Absalom. And one of those followers is David's key advisor, Ahithophel. And so David prays that God will turn the counsel of Ahithophel to Absalom into foolishness. Okay, next two chapters, chapters 16 and 17. As David flees from Jerusalem, he's helped by a man called Seba, but he's cursed by a man called Shimei. Absalom arrives in Jerusalem, and he follows Ahithophel's advice of having sex with David's secondary wives in a tent on the palace roof 
to demonstrate that he is in control. After that, however, Absalom is deceived into not following Ahithophel's advice on how to defeat David. On to the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 18. Absalom's army is defeated by David, and despite David's orders to his soldiers to spare him, Absalom, whose long hair causes him to get caught up in the branches of a tree, is stuck in that tree, and then he's killed by David's commander, Joab. On to chapter 19. David returns to Jerusalem and is full of grief for Absalom until he's rebuked by Joab for caring more about those who hate him than those who love him. David spares Shimei, the one who cursed him, and he allows Absalom's commander Amasa to remain in charge of the army in place of Joab. But there's division between the people of Israel and Judah over their roles in restoring David. Then on to chapter 20, another rebellion breaks out, this time led by a man called Sheba, who tells the people of Israel they have no share in David. Joab takes advantage of Sheba's rebellion to do what's in the picture there, to kill Imasa and take back control of the army. And Sheba ends up being defeated and killed. On to 2 Samuel chapter 21. David learns that a famine that's taken place for three years has happened because his predecessor Saul had massacred another tribe called the Gibeonites, who Israel were meant to have a covenant with. So David asked the Gibeonites what they want, and they asked for seven of Saul's descendants so they can kill them and expose their bodies. And David agrees. He gives over those people, and that's what happens to them. But later on, he sees their mother's protection of their bodies, and so David seems to relent, and he makes sure they're properly buried, along with the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and the famine then ends. And then we get chapters 22 and 23, and this is a song written by David, chapter 22, and his last words preserved in chapter 23, and he praises God for delivering those who were righteous through the covenant that he made with David. And we might think they're rather strange words, given what we've just read about. And then we get the last chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is the last chapter of the book, as I say. God's angry with Israel, so he incites David to sin by taking a military census of all of his fighting men. The consequences for Israel once again are terrible, but David pleads to God that God's hand will fall on him and his family instead of Israel. And in the place in Jerusalem where God stops his angel from causing further destruction, David buys a threshing floor and he builds an altar there and later on that becomes the site of the temple. Well, all very fascinating vicar, but what can this catalogue of savage mayhem possibly have to say to us today? Well, I think it does speak actually quite powerfully to, to us when we read through these chapters, when we engage with their contents, when we try and work out what God is saying to us through them. And I think there are three things that I want to draw out that I think are relevant to us this morning. And the first is this. David's life shows the multiple ways that sin works itself out in human lives. See, David in these chapters isn't all bad. He's still capable of showing reverence for God. 
He's still capable of showing contrition, repentance, when he realises that he's done wrong. He's capable of showing mercy to those people who might expect vengeance from him. So the man after God's own heart is at significant points still able to reflect something of God's character. But at the same time, the David that we see in these chapters is beset by weakness. He's completely unable to control his sons. He's increasingly unable to control his kingdom. The David we see in these chapters is easily manipulated by figures like Yonadab and Joab. The David we see in these chapters is partial to some while being harsh to others, and both approaches cause problems. The David we see in these chapters is muddled in his priorities, frequently failing to consult God and paying the consequences. Now, reading the chapters that cover all of this is hard work, and it's distasteful in many ways. But we're given this material, I believe, to make us ponder and reflect on the nature of David's sin and the way that it impacted upon both him and the lives of those around him. And what it helps us to see is that sin, in other words, falling short of God's perfect will for our lives, isn't just about those consciously bad decisions that we take, but also manifests itself in the weakness, the confusion, and the muddle that very often characterise how we live. We can sometimes try and kid ourselves that we're in control of our lives. But like David, we're not able to control our lives. And that's because just as with King David, sin has spoiled and distorted that perfect dependence upon God that we were created to have. Some of the things that David does in these chapters are straightforwardly bad. But in many cases, they're simply because of the weakness and the muddle that comes through being infected by sin. And both of these things <laughs> lead us onto a second point that comes out of these stories, which is this. David's life shows us the multiple ways that God's grace keeps working in human lives. The story of David is one that shows that God never gives up on working his purposes, no matter what mess is caused by human sin. David's story is preceded by that of Saul, partly to make this point. You see, as soon as Saul shows weakness and disobedience, it's basically over for him in terms of God's use of him. So that's sort of showing what things would be like if God's grace wasn't the key factor. That's the part of the purpose, the story of Saul. But from the story of David onwards, we see something quite different. In God's rock-solid commitment to David, which means that when David sins, there may be terrible consequences. In fact, there always are. But God is nonetheless always working through that mess that's created to bring redemption. Now, sometimes this involves David seeing that he's done wrong and making a better response to God, such as when he prays to God to frustrate Ahithophel's advice during Absalom's rebellion, or when he shows repentance, contrition about ordering the census. But more often, it's nothing to do with David's virtue, it's to do with God's virtue. 
More often, when God brings redemption in these stories, it's because God finds ways of bringing his redemption through the mayhem caused by the muddle and weakness, as well as the deliberate sin of his anointed king. And the encouragement for us as Christians, frequently muddled, confused, and weak Christians, is massive. Because like David, if we're honest, we're completely messed up by sin. Sometimes this results in deliberately bad things that we do. But more often, perhaps, it results in us simply being weak, us simply being fearful, being muddled, being easily manipulated, and being compromised. That's more often, really, how sin works its way out in our life. Not in consciously bad things that we do, so much as just us not being terribly good at life. We, like King David, are capable of throwing the odd desperate pair in God's direction, particularly when disasters occur in our lives. But fortunately, it's not down to our virtue to save these situations. It's to do with God's strength rather than anything within us. It's God's virtue, not ours, which is the crucial thing to bringing redemption into the disasters in our lives. God's rock-solid commitment to David, which we see in that passage, 2 Samuel 7, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, God's rock-solid commitment to David and his rock-solid commitment to us as his baptised people, because when we're baptised, we're anointed by God, we're commissioned by God, rather like David was. What that means is that God never gives up on us. Never, ever gives up on us. And he constantly opens up new paths for his redemption to take place in our lives. Now that's a really important message. Particularly when we get to my sort of age and of course beyond, and most of our life is beyond us rather than ahead of us. Midlife crisis, I think, is principally about not being able to handle that truth. When people can't handle the fact that most of their life is behind them rather than in front of them and they desperately try and sort of live as though that's not true. But the God of redemption helps us to handle just that. Because there's no disasters in our lives. There's no things that have been a wrong turn. There's no things that have been muddled and confused and less than ideal. There's no things, whether caused by deliberate sin or muddle, fear or confusion, that God cannot redeem, that God cannot work to bring good out of. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't bear the consequences of that sin. It doesn't mean that we don't bear the consequences in our life of deliberately wrong actions we've taken, as well as all the muddle, the confusion, the fear, the insecurity, and so on. But what it does mean is that God can always open up paths towards redemption from the wreckage in our lives. God is forever bringing unforeseen acts of grace out of the wreckage that we frequently make of our lives. And that's because of Jesus. And it links to the last point that we can take from these stories, which is this. 
David's life shows the multiple ways that God was preparing to send Jesus. See, if we read these stories in the light of God's supreme revelation in Jesus Christ, we can see loads of things that echo that later story. God tells David, after his sin with Bathsheba, that because of this, his son will die. The son of David will die. After David recognises his sin over the census, David asks that God's hand will fall on him and his family, rather than the people of Israel. Absalom, the son of David, receives God's curse from Deuteronomy through being hung on a tree. Do you start to recognise the echoes in this story of what we see later on? All of these parts of the story have an immediate fulfilment in the story of David, but they also point ahead as well. They point ahead to Jesus, the perfect rather than flawed son of David. The son of David who was born in David's town of Bethlehem because of another census and came to die on another tree so that the sin of the world could be dealt with. And it was that death of Jesus that enabled the residual guilt in the Davidic line over David's treatment of that faithful Gentile, Uriah the Hittite. It was the death of Jesus as the son of David that enabled that guilt to be finally atoned for. And that meant that when Jesus died, not long afterwards, the Gentiles were able to come in to God's people and be the united people that God always intended of Israel along with the nations, Jews and Gentiles together, worshipping God within one church. And all of these stories, the good, the bad and the ugly, form part of the preparation for the coming of Jesus. So it's not just being a parent that brings responsibility. All of us hold responsibility for our own lives and the way in which our lives impact upon others. Like it or not, the way that we lead our lives has a massive impact, very obviously upon our children, if we have children, but actually far beyond that. The way that we live our lives has a huge impact upon other people. And it's sobering to read the stories of King David and see how King David's sin, as I say very often, manifest in his weakness rather than his deliberately wrong actions how David's sin has its impact, not just upon his family, but on his entire kingdom. But these savage and tragic Bible stories, they're not just about human failure. We see human failure on almost every page, and it's helpful for us to see that. But these stories are also about the grace of God. The grace of God who, because of his son, Jesus Christ, never gives up on ways of bringing about redemption to the very worst of our failures. The most catastrophic things that have happened in our lives, which mean what we may well bear the consequences of, they may be things where we've looked back and we think we made terrible mistakes, they may just be things that happened because of weakness, insecurity, fear, muddle, whatever. The worst catastrophes in our life, whatever their cause, can be redeemed by God. 
Not because God scrubs the consequences of that thing, whatever it was, or that episode, or that uh, part of our lives, but because God finds ways of bringing his redemption. That's the miracle of God. We're not left to just stew in our own juice. God always finds a way of bringing his redemption, of bringing opportunities that wouldn't have existed otherwise, of giving us insights into how other people might feel because of the disasters perhaps that we've gone through and so on. Now, we definitely help that process of redemption when we're repentant, when we're contrite. We definitely have a role to play in it going as effectively as possible. But actually, it's not about us. When David uh, wrote those passages in 2 Samuel 22 and 23 about God acting to save the righteous, I think he's overestimating his righteous status, unless he's talking, which he may well be prophetically, about the righteous status that we're given in Jesus Christ because of him rather than anything to do with us. We're given a status of righteousness in the eyes of God because of what Jesus did for us when we belong to him, not really because of any virtue inherent to us. These stories are in many ways unpleasant and distasteful to read, but they're true to life. They're shockingly honest about the mess that human beings can get our lives into. But the most important thing about them in the story of the whole of the Bible is that they speak of a God of redemption. A God whose commitment to us, like his commitment to David, was rock solid. It would never change. It is totally and utterly forever. And part of what that means is that God is constantly bringing opportunities for redemption to come from the very worst and most difficult and catastrophic episodes that have happened within our lives. We're going to turn to prayer.